Today, we will continue with a long-running intermittent series on the book of Colossians, which we have studied together whenever I've had the opportunity to preach in the past couple years. Throughout the series, we have seen how Paul greets and encourages the Colossians. We have seen him speak eloquently about the supremacy of Christ. And we have seen him speak about his own ministry and how he was laboring for the Colossians and other churches like them. Then for the entirety of chapter 2, we witnessed Paul systematically destroy the false teachings that were haunting the Colossian church. Teachings that downplayed the supremacy of Christ and encouraged the Colossians to rely on other powers for their salvation and protection. We also made our way through the first few verses of chapter 3, which were a crucial pivot point away from this assault on false teaching and toward an extended portion where Paul began to outline the deadness of Christians to sin, their newness of life in Christ, and their need to leave the sins of their past lives behind. Today, we will be looking at verses 12 through 17 of chapter 3, where Paul follows up the negative exhortations of verses 5 through 11 with a series of positive ones, painting a picture of what the life of a Christian and what the life of the church should look like. So please turn with me to Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17, as we read it together. This is the inspired, infallible, inerrant word of God. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your servant, Paul, through whom you wrote this letter to the Colossians, which has so much relevance, not just for them in their time, but for all Christians throughout history. Lord, we pray that as we study it today, that 
you would work within our hearts, that your word would not go in one ear and out the other, Lord, but that you would use it to, to renew us from within, that you would use it to conform us to the image of your Son, that it would give us a renewed hatred for our sin and a renewed love for your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen. sermon today will consist of three different points. Firstly, the virtues of God's elect. Secondly, the unifiers of God's elect. And then thirdly, the actions of God's elect. In verses 1 through 4 of this chapter, Paul outlined the three great truths of the Christian life. We have died in Christ, we have been raised in Christ, and we will be glorified at Christ's return. It was in light of these truths, not apart from them, that Paul listed in verses 5 through 11 the sins that the Colossians were now dead to and must put off, namely sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and covetousness, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, lying, and partiality. Though the believer may still be tempted and fall into such practices, they are not beholden to them, and the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit will remove them to a greater and greater extent from the believer's life. Starting in verse 12, Paul shifts his emphasis from the result of our death in Christ to instructing the Colossians in the positive fruit of their resurrection in Christ, where he says, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Because of our union with Christ and our resurrection with him, ordained from before the beginning of time by our all-powerful, all-sovereign God, we are holy and beloved. Holy because the Savior with whom we are united is holy and making us holy, and beloved as sons and daughters because of our adoption through Christ. Because of this glorious truth, we have the ability, the reason, the duty, and the privilege of living in such a way that accords with it, following the example that Jesus set for us. When describing the virtues that define the chosen people of God, Paul starts off with the related values of compassionate hearts and kindness. The term that Paul actually uses instead of the ESV's helpful substitution of heart is bowels or intestines of compassion. But both have the same meaning in their respective cultural contexts, namely that the very core of one's being should be pervaded by compassion and kindness. 
our orientation towards other people, and especially our brothers and sisters in Christ, should not be enmity, rivalry, or even ambivalence, but instead a warm-hearted willingness to wish them and to do them good and to aid them in their difficulties. Next, Paul calls the Colossians to humility and meekness. As rare as these attributes are today in a culture that tells us from our birth that we are special, that we are important, that we can do anything we put our minds to, it was possibly even more foreign to the Greco-Roman world. Glory, honor, being praised by others during one's life and after one's death. These were the goals of the men, especially of these pagan societies. To seek to debase oneself, to deflect the glory that others would give to you towards God, and to put the needs of others, the desires of others above one's own, would have been seen by many as utterly shameful. Yet this is precisely what Paul and Christ before him called us to. Perhaps most famously, Jesus responds in Matthew chapter 20, verses 25 through 28, to James and John's desire to sit at his right and his left hand in the kingdom of God by saying, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Paul draws this concept out even further in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 8, where he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Of course, Paul is not here saying that in order to be truly humble, we must be crucified. But like Christ, we should not grasp onto the privileges, the rights, and the honors that we think that we deserve. But we should instead seek to serve others as Christ served us. Then in verse 13, Paul calls the Colossians to be patient, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, 
forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. While it is, of course, true that this forgiveness should extend to everyone, Paul here especially emphasizes forgiveness within the body of Christ. Whether this was an issue in the Colossian church, like it was in the Corinthian church where believers were suing each other in secular courts, we cannot know for sure. But Paul makes it abundantly clear, like he does in his first letter to the Corinthians, that one of the most vital marks of a Christian community is a culture of patience, forbearance, and forgiveness. Sin must be addressed. False teaching must not be tolerated. And yes, some people may have a pattern of sinning in a certain way that makes the restoration of full trust difficult. Yet we are called to forgive again and again and again and again. Seven times 70, as Jesus says. This is tremendously difficult and utterly against sinful human nature. But we have been raised in Christ and we are new creations. We are enabled and called to follow Christ's example in this way, for he first forgave us of a far, far, far greater debt than anybody else could owe to us. That brings us to our second point, the unifiers of God's elect. Continuing his focus on the relationship between brothers and sisters in Christ in the church, Paul picks out one specific thing as being more important than all the others. Love. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. More important than compassion, more important than kindness, than humility, than meekness, than patience, than forgiveness. Why? Paul explains in the well-known passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Any of the other virtues that Paul commends are meaningless apart from love. For without it, they are empty. At best, devoid of the force which they should carry, and at worst, full of rank hypocrisy and self-servingness. 
Obeying the law without love for God or for your neighbor is legalism. It is a law-keeping that is done at its core only in order to get something or because it makes sense to us according to our own personal logic. It is transactional, it is empty, and it is dead. Here in Colossians, Paul provides yet another reason, even beyond this, for why love is so vital. It binds together in perfect harmony. Well, there have been multiple different interpretations of what Paul is referring to as being bound, the explanation which some commentators hold, and which I think is the most faithful to the text, is that he is speaking about the binding together of the body of Christ. It is certainly true, as we looked at just a minute ago, that love binds together all of the virtues in a sense, as it gives them meaning, and without it they are meaningless. But given that this phrase is sandwiched between instructions on how Christians should forgive one another and how the peace of Christ unites Christians together in one body, it makes sense that Paul is particularly speaking about the brotherly and sisterly bond of love between Christians. The love to which we are called and which the Holy Spirit works in us is the ultimate source of harmony within the church. It is because of this love that Christians are able to show kindness and compassion to each other and to bear with and to forgive one another. When we truly love one another as ourselves, the things that separate us fall by the wayside and we are able to truly become the body of Christ. It is then that the truth that Paul states in verse 11 can find a real earthly expression in the church of Jesus Christ. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Speaking further about this unity, Paul says in verse 15, And let the peace of Christ rule into your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. As one commentator puts it, this peace is not merely a private and inward peace of the soul or some peaceful disposition of the spirit. Rather, it is speaking about the heart as the whole of one's being, pervaded and ruled by the peace of Christ. This peace is a peace with God, no longer subject to his wrathful, just punishment of our sin, but reconciled to him as his children. This peace also results in a peace between believers as brothers and sisters as we are called into one body, just as we ought to be united by our love for one another, so ought the conflict 
that exists between those who are slaves to sin cease to exist among us. I am sure anybody here could point out a time in church history, a recent news article, or from personal experience, how this is not always the case. Countless denominations and independent churches showcase the division of the body of Christ. Stories of pastors abusing rather than shepherding their flock sadly abound, and the remaining indwelling sin of Christians expresses itself in broken relationships and hurt people even within the church. But this unity that Paul speaks of is what we are called to. And it is what we must strive towards, regardless of the setbacks that present themselves. As Jesus said in John chapter 13, verse 35, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So let me ask you, church, do love and the peace of Christ mark how you relate to your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you see yourself as a lone ranger requiring nothing of others and needing to give nothing fully independent in your relationship with Jesus Christ? Or do you pour yourself out in service for those around you, not out of genuine love, but out of a desire to prove your devotion to God or to have certain people think well of you? I know that I personally have been guilty of both of these, often to my great regret. Therefore, I say this just as much to myself as to anybody here. Take stock of yourself in this area. Repent of your failings and pray to God that he would help you to love the people of God faithfully, lovingly, and without thought of self. That brings us to our third and final point, the actions of God's elect. From the end of verse 15 through verse 17, Paul turns his focus to what this united body of Christ should then do. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Firstly, we should let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. What a beautifully described exhortation by Paul. Oftentimes when someone speaks about, for example, learning a foreign language or adjusting to a new culture, they use the language of immersion as if they were diving underwater. 
I will immerse myself in the German language, they might say, meaning that they will read German books, watch German films, speak German with German people, so that they are surrounded by it as completely as, they, as someone who is underwater would be surrounded by water. But the language used here by Paul is even more intense than that. He paints a picture of the word of Christ living inside of us. With immersion, a certain amount of knowledge is achieved and a skill is gained, yet it can be hardly be said that the person who is studying German, to continue our illustration, has become German merely by learning the language. On the contrary, having the word of Christ living inside of us cannot help but change us in our deepest hearts, inside and out, as inevitably as the residents of a house make their mark on both the exterior and the interior of a building. What does the dwelling of the word inside of us look like practically? How can we have it dwell in us richly, as Paul says? What exactly are we being called to here? It is a love for, a thirst for, and a dedication to the God-breathed Holy Scriptures. It is the regular study, considering of, and meditation on it individually. It is the faithful reading and expositing of it with our families. It is discussing it and dwelling on it with our friends and with our Bible studies. And it is the faithful hearing of it preached week in and week out by faithful ministers of the word on the Lord's day. And unlike secular learning, as valuable as that is, this does not result merely in the storing up of knowledge and solutions to problems. It results in a real heart change, in our becoming more like Christ, so that it can truly be said of, of us that his word dwells in us. And it is important to remember what the context of this verse is. This is not something that we can do alone. You can't take your Bible and read it by yourself for the rest of your life, separating yourself from other believers and from the church that Christ has instituted, believing that you are meant to wrestle with the scriptures in isolation. This is a recipe for, at best, a stunted Christian life. One where the Bible was read through the prism of your own biases and where you never have the painful yet vital privilege of having others shine a bright light on your own sin to which you are blind as well as your need for a savior. No, the word of God is meant for us to cherish and to apply as part of a community of brothers and sisters, the church.
And it is also as part of this community that Paul says we should be teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Some commentators connect the teaching and admonishing one another with the previous section instead of singing, but others argue convincingly, in my opinion, for seeing the teaching and admonishing as occurring within the singing. Accordingly, this is not a passage that teaches that just anybody in a church can be a teacher of the word in an official sense. Yes, parents ought to teach the children the scriptures. Husbands ought to lovingly lead their wives spiritually. But the office and duty of teaching the word of God is clearly restricted in other Pauline letters to the elders of the church and those to whom they delegate it. What this passage is teaching instead is a wonderful truth. We collectively teach and exhort and encourage each other through the singing of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. When we sing together here, we are not only worshiping God or receiving from God, though both of those things are certainly happening, we are teaching each other about God through the words that we sing, and we are exhorting one another through the faith that we are displaying. When I was a kid growing up in what I would call a fairly typical non-denominational church in the United States with a praise band up leading worship on stage, there was one woman in our church who would sing particularly loudly. And there is, if we're talking about her ability to keep a tune, there's a reason that she was not up on the stage with a microphone. And I remember me and my brothers would look at each other and we would just roll our eyes. We would be so exasperated by this because we felt that she was distracting us from the real worship, what the real focus should be. We were so wrong. This woman was overcome by love for Jesus and what he had done for her, and she wanted the whole church to know. She wanted the whole world to know. She understood this passage, even if she might not have been able to point to it herself. What if we all sang with that exuberance, not out of a desire to, to drown out our neighbor or for everybody to hear how great our singing voice is, or in my case, not so great, but out, out of a desire to impress the words of these psalms and great hymns on each other and to encourage one another in our common faith. I personally used to take corporate singing in church for granted. I was so used to it that I was never struck by its importance until the first time that we were able to sing together as a congregation after all of the first COVID lockdowns. That was without a doubt 
the most heavenly sounds that I have ever heard in my entire life. And I confess that I was brought to tears by it. I have learned so much from singing the songs and our hymnals with you all. And I'm always so blessed and encouraged to hear your voices every Sunday as we praise our God together and extol his virtues to each other. So let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, don't restrain yourself. Don't hold back. Don't sing quietly, intentionally, because you don't want other people to hear you. Sing out loud. Sing out passionately. Because what you are doing is not just a blessing for yourself or for God. It's blessing every single person who is sitting around you. Finally, Paul punctuates verses 15 through 17 with encouragements, commands even, to give thanks to God. When should we give this thanks? Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The Christian life should be absolutely filled with thankfulness, internal thankfulness, but even more external proclamations of thankfulness. This shouldn't be difficult. We have so much that we can be thankful for. Our very existence, our family, our friends, our jobs, our possessions, our church, and most of all, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Yet it is so easy to sink into a routine of, if not outright unthankfulness, being desensitized to the blessings which we have received and taking them for granted as I took the corporate worship of God's people. This is why Paul bombards the Colossians with these commands in these verses. And be thankful, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God, giving thanks to God the Father through him. It is our duty to give thanks individually and corporately, internally and externally, to give God the glory that he is due. But it is not only a duty, it is a privilege. It is a foretaste of heaven and the wedding feast of the Lamb which John describes so vividly in Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 through 7. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. Come, Lord Jesus, come. And until that day, let us never tire of loving him and being loved by him. These verses that we have studied today have been full of instruction for the Christian life, full of practical down-to-earth application for how we should conduct ourselves towards God and towards our fellow believers and fellow human beings. 
but for the person who is not in Christ, who hears all this and sees a set of instructions to a people to whom he does not belong, coming from a God that is not his. What about that person? If you are that person, know this. The gospel is offered to you. Your sins can be forgiven. You can be reconciled to God. And you can become his son or daughter today at this very moment. All you need to do is put your faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, for your salvation. He will receive you gladly. We will receive you gladly. And the very angels in heaven will rejoice. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your servant Paul, through whom you spoke. Lord, we pray that you would help us to consider your words here, Lord, that we would not quickly forget and put them aside, but that we would dwell on them and meditate on them. Lord, that you would convict us of where we have fallen short of the standard that you have set for us as your children. And Lord, that we would not hide ourselves away in shame, but that we would repent and that we would come to you in boldness, knowing that you are our Father, that you care for us, that you love us, and that we have a mediator in your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray all these things in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus. Amen.